Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst in New Mexico today, in Santa Fe, a beautiful blue city. Blue skies, blue politics. Uh, I'm not sure what level of blue politics quite yet, but I can tell by how many people are wearing masks, everybody, that there is a recognition of reality and science. We are 47 days away from the election, so I need to share with you my takeaways from five days driving across the country in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an election, in the middle of what is likely to be the worst economic situation in over 100 years. People are in pain and they are angry, very, very, very angry. You can feel the anger in the air. The red in the red states is anger, raw red hot anger. I just drove through six red states and I felt it. And I especially felt it in Amarillo. Now, people have a right to be angry. We can't and shouldn't try to talk them out of their anger. In a very real way, this election is about what to do with that anger. Donald Trump is brilliant at tapping anger and turning angry people against others. Mexicans, people of color, women. That's his gift. So be it. But as progressives, we have a different idea. We want to recognize that anger and the pain that is causing it. We want to acknowledge the validity of the pain and the anger and then focus on policies that will address the sources of the pain and anger and change in this country. Okay, so what does that say about this election for us? Guess what? There is a candidate who is actually brilliant at understanding pain and listening to our anger. And believe it or not, his name is Joe Biden. Biden is not, okay, we know this. He's not where we want him to be on policies to address that pain and anger. But at least he has the capacity to feel it. Certainly, certainly more than other neoliberals like Pete Buttigieg or Delaney or Klobuchar who are just plug and play by their consultants. And frankly, it's it's more than we sometimes do as progressives. This isn't an intellectual exercise, friends. Some of us as progressives can sometimes come across as bloodless. Intellectuals full of furious theories about a better world, which we need to fight tirelessly for. But that world is composed of people. People outside of our blue bubbles. People outside of our academic circles. Real people who live and suffer. People who lose their jobs and their homes. Who try as best as they can to raise their kids. People, as Jesse Jackson always said, who take the early bus. Except now the early bus has been canceled. Working people and out-of-work people don't need theories. They, they, They can't eat theories. They need jobs and homes and a basic income. They need healthcare and clean air and the elimination of debt and education. That's why we like AOC and Rashida. They see people. And why we love Cori Bush, because she puts that soul back in governing. Well... Believe it or not, and you should definitely go back and look at the tapes. So does Joe Biden. And no, he is not everything we need. I need to keep reiterating this because sometimes people take one sentence and they take it out of context. But he does have soul. And he does understand the pain and anger of this country right now. And he understands its essential preconditions for changing things. That anger is an essential precondition for changing things. Do you hear that? Frankly, my message to campaign manager Jen O'Malley Dillon and the Biden team is very simple. Unleash him! Where is he? Let Biden be Biden. Take him off script. 
enough with the little videos. Go get him out there talking to people. Sit down at a diner. Have Biden talking to some working people about their pain. Let him be a human. Sure, he will stumble. He has always suffered from foot and mouth disease, and maybe he's even lost a step. But he has one indispensable quality America is looking for in 2020. In a moment when pain and anger are our overriding reality, Joe Biden can actually connect with folks' pain and anger more than Hillary Clinton or, frankly, any of the other neoliberals out there right now. That was his strength all all along, right? That's why they wanted to pick him. He knows how to tell that other guy, hey, Trumpers, come on. Trump's a rich kid who never worked a real day in his life. Stop faking it. It's a long way from Scran to Trump Tower, and Biden should just call that out over and over and over again. Every day between now and November 3rd. This is what it's about. If we are not recognizing and tapping into people's anger and pain, Trump is going to be taking advantage of that. And if you don't think that's true, take a trip across the country and see that excitement and see people channel that pain and anger into others and into their excitement for Donald Trump rather than into big ideas that solve the problems causing pain and anger. That is what the Biden campaign needs to do. Get him out there. Mistakes are going to be made. They're made in every single election. But what we gain is a path to winning this election and fighting fascism. There are a lot of stories at the top of my news feed today. Uh, let's, oh, I just lost track of those <laughs> stories. Uh, give me one second, guys. You know what? We'll be back with uh, right after the break, and I will go to the stories right before our interview. We have a great show today. We have Sasha Abramsky, and we have Representative Chris Rabb, who I think is one of the most progressive leaders in the country right now. Uh, He is representative out of Pennsylvania, that swing state that's so important. And Sasha Abramsky is going to tell us how even if Biden wins the election, Donald Trump might stage a coup. He wrote about this in The Nation this week. It's going to be a super interesting conversation. That's up after the break. to the Nomi Key Show from Santa Fe, New Mexico, on the road. I think this is our fifth day on the road. Have a couple more coming. But next week, we will be situated back in studio. Uh, I am excited about our next guest because I've been following him for a long time. Uh, Sasha Abramsky is a journalist. He's an author. He's the creative, uh, the creator of the Abramsky Report. And he writes for The Nation in which uh, there's this article that's freaking me out uh, that was published 10 days ago on September 7th. Titled is... <laughs> I can't even say it without freaking out. Is Trump planning a coup d'etat? Uh, Sasha, thanks for joining us. And there's enough things to worry about. Is this is this really on the table? Let's just start well, with that. First of all, thank you for having me on. And if you're in Santa Fe, you're in one of my favorite cities in the world. So I hope you get to enjoy yourself a bit. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a really scary prospect. I mean, basically what I've been writing about for many years now is the fact that there's an authoritarian impulse in Trump's governing style that is something antithetical to the way the democratic structure works. And as the election's gotten nearer, that's gotten worse. And the chaos around the administration has gotten worse. And the willingness to use violent language and to um, pander to very violent online rhetoric and very violent online groupings has gotten worse. So the answer to your question, is he planning this? I don't know what's going on in his mind. 
Is there a risk that things spiral badly in the coming months, both before the election and after the election? There's clearly a risk. There's clearly a cause for concern. And people across the political spectrum, and that was in my article, old guard Republicans like Charles Freed, who worked as Solicitor General for Ronald Reagan, progressive groups like MoveOn.org and Indivisible, across the political spectrum, people are worrying and strategizing about what to do if this thing goes south fast. I, you know, I'm, I'm a part of some of these groups and these conversations, and uh, it's been jarring to see just, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that everybody's organizing, but at a time when we really should be focusing at, you know, 40 days before an election uh, on organizing and getting people out to vote, we're instead, not instead, I mean, we're doing both things. We're talking about what do we do to protect our, the remnants of our republic at this point. No, that's right. And you look at what's been going on in the last few weeks. First of all, there was this completely craven attack on the postal service. We're going to underfund and undermine the postal system. Trump said it very explicitly, so they can't get all the absentee ballots in. And then you have attack on in-person voting. And Trump says, well, it's going to be filled with people fraudulently voting. Therefore, my supporters should vote twice. And then you have Bill Barr saying, well, you know, I'm not going to guarantee there won't be political prosecutions in the run up to the election. And you have this completely off the wall suggestion yesterday that the mayor of Seattle and presumably by extension, other progressive leaders maybe ought to be prosecuted for sedition or other charges because of their approach um, on the Black Lives Matters and anti-police brutality protests. So you're having this sort of ramping up of rhetoric. And then you have this idea where Trump basically says, well, the election has to be decided the night of November 3rd. Well, that's not going to happen, or it's very unlikely it's going to happen, because there are going to be tens of millions of votes that are going to be counted that came in by mail. Because, as you mentioned, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And that means people are going to be voting in different ways than they would when there is no pandemic. But what Trump's basically saying is he's going to try and sort of force and strong arm elections officials to end counts prematurely and to maybe try and prematurely claim victory and then rely on Bill Barr and the other agencies of state to really try and gum up the works to, you know, gum up the works legally to make it impossible to finish and certify vote counts, you know, all of this stuff that shouldn't be happening because it corrodes democracy. We know it shouldn't be happening. I mean, look, Jim Mattis, who's hardly a sort of left-wing radical anarchist and Mad dog Mattis, right? <laughs> Mad dog Mattis issued a warning letter in the Atlantic Monthly a couple months back where he basically said, look, what Trump is doing is so divisive and dangerous, it risks destroying the American system of government. Uh, Dan Coates, the ex-director of national intelligence, again, this is not some, you know, Antifa raving, whatever. Dan Coates published an opinion piece in the New York Times today saying the future of American democracy is on the line in this election. There are some really, really big warning signs out there that people who are studying this on the inside as well as on the outside of the system are taking very, very seriously at this point. So, so it is interesting to see this coalition. Um, you mentioned uh, former D RNC chair uh, Michael Steele, who, you know, is a contributor to MSNBC. He's, he's, he's by no means a lockstep like with the establishment Republican. He was pushed out yeah. of the RNC a few That's years right. ago. So it's, it's important to highlight that. But, you know, that's always been my my safety, the, the safety valve, I guess, uh, has always been, well, well, you know, like the, the Republican senators aren't going to let this happen because, first off, they want to win the Senate. So having some sort of understanding of the vote count is important to them, too. And 
I just, I, I mean, it just seems like there's going to be too many Republicans. As we remember Nixon being impeached, how many people started to melt away and, and all of his circle of allies, they just said, you know, it's not worth it in the end. Yeah, well, there, there are a few things here. You're, you're right. That may be the case, um, though, relying on the GOP to either have a sort of road to Damascus moment where they rediscover <laughs> their conscience or to sort of realize the pragmatic of going along Trump's dark, dark, dark road. You know, relying on that as a safety-breaking mechanism to protect the republic is a little bit dangerous at this point because, you know, if, if you look at what happened during impeachment, you know, all the evidence suggested Trump was using or trying to strong-arm the Ukraine in a way that wasn't legal. He got impeached, and then the Senate basically said, we don't want to listen to evidence, and they voted lockstep, with the exception of Mitt Romney, to acquit him. Time and again, Trump does something, and the Republicans sort of say, oh, you know, we don't know anything about that. Trump says, you know, neo-Nazis are very nice people, and most Republican senators just say, we never heard about that. We don't know what you're talking about. Trump says the media are the enemy of the people and urges sort of physical harassment or attacks on the media. The Republicans say, well, we don't we don't know what the big deal is. So, you know, the idea that you can rely on 53 Republican senators as the safeguard of the republic is sort of slim pickings. But, you know, you are right that when Nixon went beyond a certain point, at the end of the day, the Republicans began peeling off. Mm -hmm. And that could happen here. You could see that the cult of the personality that has protected and cuckooed Donald Trump, at the end of the day, that that protection mechanism breaks down and sort of at the 11th hour and 58th minute or whatever it might be, the Republicans decide that the future of the Republic is so important that they have to break with Trump. That is possible. On the other hand, Richard Nixon didn't have Fox News and Breitbart right. and social media. He didn't have Facebook and the echo chamber of Twitter and all of these things that are preserving Trump's sort of sense of invulnerability. So my point was not to say all of this is preordained. My point was not to say this is definitely going to happen. My point was to say there's a real danger here, that there are enough signs afoot that the election is, you know, ha has got these elements that could lead to violence, that could lead to chaos, that could lead to, you know, contested results. There's at least enough uncertainty that anyone of good conscience, doesn't matter if you're left-wing, doesn't matter if you're right-wing, anyone of good conscience should be paying attention and working out what they can do to help protect this very valuable experiment, the American system of democracy. And, and I, I should note that today is Constitution Day. Uh, so there's the, <laughs> there's the big question there about preserving whatever in the Constitution yeah. that we, we respect in this country and, and do fight for um, as progressives. So I, I, I look to the courts right now, and I am by no means a legal expert, but I'm, I'm very curious from, from your assessment of the landscape and how many judges he's been able to appoint that were approved uh, in many cases by Democrats and Republicans, um, more centrist Democrats, of course. But I mean, w will it come down to the courts? And if so... In those those states that we assume are going to be swing states, whether it's the Rust Belt or the Sun Belt, do we have the right mechanism, mechanisms in place, at least legally, to fight back at the courts? 
you know, it's a, it's a great question. And it's one of the things I've been writing about for the last four or five years is you have these epic battles that are going on in the political system and on the streets through political protests, but you have these equally epic battles going on on the courts. And we've seen this for four years now around immigration policy, environmental deregulation, around use of money to fund a border wall. There are numerous instances where really significant policy issues end up being played out on the courts. And, you know, I've written probably dozens of articles at this point on the way that asylum and refugee and temporary protected status and these other parts of the immigration system basically have become legal footballs. So if the same thing happens in the election, if come election day there are 10 or 15 states where the Republicans or the Democrats for that matter decide this thing is so close we're not going to concede, we're going to you know throw every legal spanner in the works that we possibly can, you know, God only knows what happens. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the chaos in America in 2000, in November, December 2000, mm-hmm. when Florida becomes the pivotal state and it comes down to a few hundred votes and nobody could work out exactly how to count the votes because there are these hanging chads and dimpled ballots and everything else. And it comes down to essentially an arbitrary Supreme Court decision that's so arbitrary the Supreme Court says, well, you, we're going to make this decision now because we need a result, but we can't consider it precedent for the future. Mm-hmm. So they basically said, we're going to ad lib this. So you could easily end up in a situation where state Supreme Courts decide we're going to ad lib it or where the U.S. Supreme Court says, you know, what on earth are we going to do? We've got an election. We've got 10 or 15 states. We can't certify the results. We've got to come down with a result. We're just going to wing it. And nobody knows how that's going to turn out. And, you know, that that is so devastating to confidence in the electoral system to know that at the end of the day, 100, 150 million people can cast their vote. And yet you can end up with a bunch of lawsuits being filed not to seek clarity, but to actually obfuscate and to actually lock up the process. That will devastate confidence in the electoral system from here to come. We'll have nothing left in, you know, in our faith in the ability of electoral politics to secure results. And not to mention, and we've covered this previously on the show, uh, we also have this electoral. I mean, that was back when we had paper ballots, which are, frankly, probably the most reliable form of, of casting a ballot. Now you have several states across this country swinging otherwise. We saw with California, their their ballot machines malfunctioned and they're owned by like a couple of conservatives. This is mind blowing. And this all happened after 2000 when everybody was rushing to, we need a solution and Democrats were on board with electronic you know, ballot systems. And, and it turns out it was another grift for some Republicans to, to make money off of and possibly influence elections. I mean, this is, I just, I worry so much that like, you know, what's happening in America is you're having pretty much a good chunk of the citizenry who vote wake up and the, the like the curtain's been pulled back not just on like what it takes to get to fascism but just the systems that were supposed to be in, put in place to prevent this from happening and seeing how you know behind the scenes their conservative elements have been working quietly and tirelessly to work out the ballot systems to take over courts to get certain people appointed and take over legislatures of course uh it's just i don't really know how we out organize this at this point so so that begs my question what do we do about it there are groups organizing but, but how yeah no that's a great question and you know one of the few benefits of getting older is that you can look back and say when i was a young journalist and when i was a young journalist over the last 20 years i have just repeatedly gone back to this whole idea what do we do when electoral systems malfunction and they seem to malfunction fairly systematically when you have election machines that don't work reliably when you have polling stations that 
are closed down, when you have voter suppression tactics designed to purge voter rolls, when you have court siding, as they did recently with, you know, this crazy effort to make it all but impossible to re-enfranchise ex-felons in Florida. In Florida. After- thousands. <laughs> not because the public doesn't want it. The public they voted, voted for it. enfranchised <laughs> them. And then the court said, well, they didn't really mean it. What they meant was you have to pay absolutely every single court fine and every single associated financial thing, and then you may be eligible. And this is insanity. I mean, this makes it all but impossible to re-enfranchise people. So what do we do about it? We organize around it. Because however imperfect the electoral system is, it's still a whole bunch better than the alternative. That's a mangling of Winston Churchill's quote. But Winston Churchill once upon a time said, you know, democracy is the worst possible system. And then he paused, (laughs) except for everything else. Exactly. And that's kind of it. It's messy. It's ugly. It often looks like making sausage, you know, behind the scenes. It doesn't work very well all the time. But it is so much better than the alternative. The slide to violence, to confrontation, the dehumanizing of people through you know, increasingly coercive language and actions. So we need to find ways to make it work. So we vote, we organize, we do non-violent, peaceful protest if need be. What John what John Lewis called good trouble. Yeah. We stay engaged. And I think the single biggest thing is you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs. Tens of millions of people lost their healthcare access. Tens of millions of people worried about their housing or schooling for their kids. There are millions of people who either have or had COVID and are suffering all the health consequences from that. And a lot of people are going to say, you know what? I got too much to worry about. I don't have time to get involved. I don't have time to vote. I don't have time to register to vote. And that's the worst possible thing, because unfortunately, all of these things are impacted by how you vote or don't vote. You know, you want access to health care. you got to vote. You want, you know, rent moratoriums or other ways to protect your housing in the middle of a pandemic. you got to vote. You, you want expanded access to health insurance. you got to vote. You sit this one out. Nothing stops except your ability to participate and shape your own destiny. So I guess the single thing I'd say, you know, I don't know how many people are listening to this interview. Single biggest thing I'd say to those of you who are is whatever the temptations to disengage, however much you're dispirited by the ugliness and the coarseness of the political rhetoric, however much you think, gosh, this whole thing is stacked against ordinary people. At the end of the day, your vote is your voice. And so that's what I would say. Really, really get engaged and vote and organize. So, I mean, it's, I live in a blue stamp. I live in New York. And I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, I'm going to vote on another line. I'm going to do something else to exercise my vote. There's also just a, a, a financial aspect of this, too. I mean, when you see a party like, for instance, the Democratic Party in New York is by no means the most democratic party. But the more progressives vote on the Democratic line, the more they're able to influence some of the logistics of the party because there's representatives that can get appointed to the the DNC in, in New York. So there's just if you want to take over your machine, you have to be active on the outside and on the inside and taking it over. So for our for those who are saying things like, you know, okay, great, I'm in a Democratic state. Biden's going to win. Why does it matter? I'm going to vote Green. I'm going to vote Independence. I'm going to vote WFP, whatever it is. And there's there are arguments to that, too. The other side of it is if you don't want to have these corporate Democrats, you also have to who aren't going to approve these judges, these right wing judges, then you have to be active in those states, too. But that's a different conversation. Um, what does a coup look like? Um, you know, the language of coup, <laughs> 
I don't think we're looking at a literal situation where Trump calls out the generals and the next day we have a hunter. I think what we're looking at is... Well, the generals are against him, right? They they may or may not be, but they've also said that they are strictly nonpartisan. And I think there's a long tradition in the US military of not getting directly involved in domestic politics. Um, I, I think what we're looking at is a president who is willing to use and abuse his platform in order to gin up chaos rather than to try and tamp down chaos and to gin up division rather than to try and tamp down division. And the idea seems to be, and you know, it's always a struggle to work out what in holy hell is going on in his mind, but the idea seems to be that chaos and disillusionment and disengagement and suppressing votes in large numbers and making people you know, really uncertain about the electoral outcome is the best way to preserve power. It's not really even about election victory or defeat. It's about the preservation of power. So I don't think a coup looks like tanks rolling down the streets. I think what we're talking about is just sowing the seeds of chaos. Mm. And people who are thinking about this or should be thinking about it should be we minimize the chaos. How do we preserve confidence in the electoral process? How do we preserve civic engagement that allows for a space for disagreement without that disagreement sliding into violence or sliding into, you know, literal open confrontation? Because nobody wants that, or very few people want that. You know, there may be some extremists, especially on the internet, who think that chaos like that is a good thing. But the vast majority of people, I, I, I don't care whether you're a Republican, Democrat, or anything else, the vast majority of people in this country do not want to wake up on November 4th in a situation of civic conflict and civic unrest. So the question then is, how do we use the time that we have knowing that Trump seems to be a person incapable of reining in his worst impulses? How do we use that time to limit the damage? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think we're talking about for a moment in time where we have absolute calm and absolute civility and you know this, we wake up and it's all a bad dream. We want to get to a place where we limit the damage. Right. And that, that I think is what we need to be doing over the next few weeks. And if we can do that, we will avoid the, you know, the worst possibilities in the period surrounding the election. So if we can minimize the damage, I mean, there are, are militias being organized um, not undercover anymore. I mean, they, these these types of folks used to happen in the dark, the, the darkness of the Internet, right? Not even the intellectual dark web, just the dark web. And now they're doing it out in the open. Um, yeah, I, I saw this video. I don't buy it completely, but I'm not. I've been traveling across the country and I see the signs and I see the people with the flags on their trucks of the Trump flags and the homemade like banners. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it's very hard to. I, I, I'm concerned about Biden's enthusiasm and his interest in making people excited, just distributing signs, for instance, yep. or having offices available for people to make calls, whatever it is, just basic campaign stuff that you know, may not win you an election, but at least can signify that someone's proud to vote for you. Yeah. Um, and Trump, of course, has that excitement. And, and he posted this video of the lines into his rally today. You know, let's forget about the fact that, like, having another rally is a COVID disaster. But I didn't even know he was. Where's he having a rally? I don't know. He posted it today that he was doing just a video of, of the line. I didn't pay attention to where it was, but um, <laughs> I should be. But it was it was concerning to see the line. Um so, you know, these are folks that are are openly out there talking about things that, again, used to be said 
quietly behind the scenes didn't mean that they didn't exist but now that they see others it's becoming more aggressive and the anger is more pronounced and it's out there and i'm 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 worried um i think like as you are how that's going to manifest after the election uh if trump does so this chaos if it's not coming from the military you know whether it's people who've been organizing the stuff for yeah. a long time in the shadows or people who are just going to latch onto that? I mean, what, oh, I, what can we do about it? I'm, I'm desperately worried about this. And, you know, it's absolutely obvious that at least a part of the American public has got this sort of paramilitarist impulse at this point, that they think it's a good idea to weaponize. They think it's a good idea to bring arms to political protests. They think it's a good idea to talk about their political enemies as enemies, you know, as opposed to political opponents, which is really what we should be discussing our disagreements um, around. But this is a real problem. You know, this is a real risk that you could have not just isolated incidents of violence, and we've had that for years now, and it's been dispiriting and discouraging and, you know, frankly, horrifying to watch this slide towards violence but there's a real risk that it goes to that next step and goes from being isolated pockets of violence to being much more systematic semi-organized maybe beyond semi-organized maybe coordinated at a much higher level and that is a catastrophe in the making because these guys roaming around as you said you know pickup trucks trump signs everywhere carrying weapons open openly carrying weapons you know, that has the makings of a disaster. We've seen that in other countries. I mean, we, we, we know it's a really, really bad thing when groups of mainly young people roam around a community looking for enemies with weapons that they're carrying. We know, we know that really bad things happen. And you don't have to be a sort of political scholar or, you know, you don't have to have a crystal ball to see that things have the potential to you know, go pretty wrong pretty quickly if you have weaponry brought into the political process. And so, you know, this this is a moment of such peril. And again, you know, the easy option is, ah, I hate it all. I just want to disengage. Can't do it. There's just yeah. no room to disengage right now because you really don't want to cede the country to people who think it's a good idea to hurt political opponents physically. I, 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 I don't know what the solution is. Um, I hope that these groups, I mean, voting obviously is very, very, very important, but but if we don't have, I mean, if the police obviously weren't on the side of progressives, uh, who's there to, to make sure that they're contained and following the law and not disorderly and, and not instituting any sort of violence? I mean, wh- yeah. where, where do we go? Well, I, you know, honestly, I think if you look at, I, I was a teenager in the 1980s and I remember, first of all, in the early 80s, I remember um, Poland, the Solidarity Movement, Lech Walesa and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that was an incredibly oppressive regime with the very real risk that the Soviet did in tanks and crushed protesters. And all of the forces were on the side of that state apparatus. But the workers in Gdansk at the shipyards basically came out non-violently. And that combination of workplace power combined with student power combined with intellectuals writing and so on combined with international support made a difference if you fast forward to 1989 you know you can think of figures like Vladislav Havel the Czech playwright this voice of conscience for what was then Czechoslovakia or you could just think of the ordinary men and women who went to the Berlin Wall the single most oppressive symbol of the Cold War and they went to the Berlin Wall in the autumn of 1989 and they 
knocked the thing down. They knocked mm -hmm. it down with chisels and hammers. Yeah. And there were so many people expressing peaceful, just disgust with a decayed system that they overwhelmed the state apparatus. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can go all over the world and look at that. Just because the forces of physical might are arrayed against you doesn't mean you pack up shop and go home. And actually, nonviolent protest, whether you call it soul force protest like Martin Luther King did, or whether you call it Satyagraha like Mahatma Gandhi did, nonviolent protest is an immensely powerful force for change in society. And I think that's what we may need to end up sort of falling back on. I, I really. I really hope that your worst uh, premonitions <laughs> do not play out. Um, Sasha, thank you yeah. for this piece. Thank you for, for highlighting it. I'd love to have you back on soon. I think there's a lot to discuss here, uh, especially as we get closer and have, you know, probably a little bit more. Maybe we'll have more information. I don't know. Maybe. Well, listen, I'd be delighted to come back on your show. And in the meanwhile, I hope you have at least some time to enjoy yourself in Santa Fe and in New Mexico. I am. I already had red and green. Oh, it's delicious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sasha. Hey, take, take care. care. Be well. Thank you. We'll be right back uh, after the break with Representative Rab and Representative Lee Carter from Virginia. That's after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show, live from Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, the week on the road with, with I think we're getting better with the tech, I mean, really it's me, because everybody else is doing their job, I'm just the one who keeps messing up when it comes to technology. Uh, this is why we have people who know how to do this, and me, who can just read a script. Um, <laughs> I am very excited to have, this This is like becoming a panel where we find really progressive lawmakers around the country, put them together, and talk about uh, how to, to fight for progress. We have Representative Lee Carter, who is from Virginia's 50th district, uh, and he, of course, is a socialist. I remember when he won, he shocked the world. Everyone's like, oh my god, socialists can win. This is crazy. And now, of course, it's happening everywhere, uh, even in the most entrenched machines and in states like Pennsylvania. Uh, we have Representative Rab, who represents the 200th district right. in Pennsylvania. That's a lot. Uh, he has been a guest on the show before. Progressive, highest turnout in Pennsylvania, if I'm correct. I just yeah. drove through your district. I have a lot of comments to make. Um, <laughs> if I can share them, not with your district, really, with Pennsylvania. But okay. before we get to that, we're going to go over some stories today, and I'd love to get your response. But uh, I, I will start with Pennsylvania. This just happened, right? Yes. There's some news out of Pennsylvania, which um, is good, because before we get to that, there was I drove through Pennsylvania and saw a restaurant full of 200 people without masks on. Stuffed together, no social distance inside. They were not letting people sit outside, even though there were tables. We walked out, and then later I, I learned that um, there was a right wing judge who struck down the COVID, uh, any sort of COVID restrictions provisions that would, yeah. So not great news out of Pennsylvania, but then you have some good news you want to deliver right now. So tell us what's what's the news. I'm very excited to report that the state Supreme Court has ruled that drop boxes are permissible across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, Trump and what his cronies. Well, that means that anyone who uh, requests a mail-in ballot can complete that mail-in ballot in the comfort of their own home, and instead of putting it in a mailbox or the U.S. Postal Service, can put it in a drop box that may generally resemble a mailbox. 
Um, and that is the property of the Board of Elections or the county commissioners, so that um, there's no concern about it being lost in the mail or it being tampered with or anything like that. So it is uh, for folks who wanna avoid the polls, avoid exposure to COVID, and also know that their ballot is going to be counted just like every other ballot without potentially being lost in the mail, you can put it in a drop box that has uh, video surveillance, um, wow. Board of Elections staff to receive it, um, to make sure everything is kosher. And that's gonna happen, that has the potential to happen statewide, but most importantly, in the most um, voter suppressed areas where uh, we have African-American voters. So we're talking about places like Philadelphia and other uh, metro areas across the state. And we just found this out within like an hour um, so that's really, really good news. Good. That's good. Um, and it can be duplicated, hopefully, around the country. Uh, Lee, Representative Carter, I feel like, first, can I do forced names with you guys? Because I'm like your friends. <laughs> yeah. Everyone knows me as Rep. Rab in Philly. Everyone know who you're yeah, talking I know about. you as Chris, though. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Lee, you're in Virginia, um, another supposed swing state. Um, I love to hear progressive perspectives on, like, what is actually happening on the ground because when I talk to people who are a little bit more neoliberal, they're like, yeah, we're going to win. It's great. Just turn out and vote. But driving through these states, I'm like, where are the Biden signs? What's happening? All I'm seeing is Trump signs. How do you feel about the operation in Virginia right now? Well, Virginia is in uh, kind of a tough place. So, uh, you know, statewide, uh, of course, the Democrats have won all statewide elections going back to, I believe, 2014. Um, and so, you know, presidentially, Virginia is maybe not necessarily a swing state, but um, there are uh, certainly um, congressional districts that are considered swing districts. Uh, there are state legislative districts, uh, although our state legislative elections are on odd numbered years, so I'm not up for re-election this year. Um, but our, our state legislative districts, a lot of them are considered swingy, especially mine. Um, and, and that really sort of uh, changes how um, the Democratic Party operates, right? It makes the Democratic Party much more afraid of its own shadow, much more timid, much more afraid to do anything. And so um, what we end up with are, um, you know, perfect example, the Democrats took trifecta control uh, of, of both chambers, you know, the House of Delegates, the State Senate, right. uh, plus the, the governor's mansion uh, last year. And um, there, you know, there's there's a, a wide swath of, of policy areas where we've made a lot of changes, but not on things that people uh, are going to acutely feel. Right. right? So, um, you know, we're 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 sort of playing around the edges at everything, um, and and it's being driven mostly by a conservative Democratic governor who uh, is term limited, can never run for re-election, hmm. and conservative Democratic leadership in the House and the Senate who are in ultra-safe districts, but they keep saying, we can't do this because we'll lose the swing seats. But- Which is your seat. You're, you're a progressive, you're a socialist who won in a swing seat. So case right. in point, doesn't work. And most of the voices pushing for more and more change are from those swing seats. You know, we're saying... We need to do more. We need to fight harder. We need to be louder. We need to push for uh, cannabis legalization. And instead, we got a a partial decriminalization, which brings it down to to the level of a traffic ticket, which is good. It's progress, but it's not what we campaigned on. Those of us that are actually in the swing districts that, that, you know, have our necks hanging out there. 
Um, and, you know, of course, with, uh, with COVID-19 shutting down everything, it was right after we had gone through uh, a budgeting cycle. And so uh, we, we came back for our, uh, what we call the veto session in April and uh, the governor unallocated all the new spending. So, um, you know, no more teacher pay raises, um, you know, uh, no more uh, additional counselors, um, you know, all sort of. Uh, no, it's austerity. It's essentially austerity during a time of, of crisis when teachers yeah. are putting their lives in lines. And yeah. Right. So I, I, I'm the story uh, stood out to me today, and I think it relates to both of your states because uh Pennsylvania has a long history of, of of organizing on the ground, radical military style police and leadership, uh, pressing them. And of course, Virginia, um, I mean, we, we can't forget what happened when white nationalists came in and murdered a protester just a couple of years ago. So the story is um, military police tried to find a heat ray to use against protesters outside the White House. Um, not making this up, the request came from the leader of the military police on the day that protesters were moved. So Trump could stand outside a church with the, with a Bible, if you remember that. Uh, there really is this weapon, right? This is called an ADS. It heats the skin of targets. And in 2018, the Border Patrol considered using it against migrants. So the police, the military, and our Border Patrol are not separate forces serving disconnected aims. They practice these methods of suppression and violence against one section of the working class in order to use it on others. So if we don't have solidarity, we have no way of protecting ourselves, right? Our fates are way more connected than we know. So I'm, I, I, the weapon wasn't used as far as we know, uh, but I'm curious, like, you know, at, at the state level, are they communicating in any way. I mean, if they're all interconnected like this, you have the Border Patrol, you have the military police, you, you of course have just the actual military and you have Homeland Security. Um, what an ICE, what's happening at the state level? Do you guys, are you in the dark about this? Rep. Rab. Um, great question. So, you know, when we talk about law enforcement, oftentimes it's from a municipal standpoint on the local, and we think about our municipal police. Um, but we also have state troopers. Right. Um, but even more importantly, there was a law in the 1930s that authorized governors to create uh, state-based militias. Uh, they were called state defense forces. And most states created them when um, men and women went to serve in World War II and the Korean conflict. So folks could start their own state defense forces and they could never be federalized. They could only protect those folks in their own state borders. Well, Pennsylvania created the, uh, the Pennsylvania State Guard in 1941 and they deactivated it after the Korean conflict in 1953. But the governor could resuscitate it and use it for purposes of keeping the peace or what have you. It is essentially a, a state militia. But I'm actually seeking um, to introduce legislation to um, resuscitate it and use it for community safety, for public mm -hmm. health, uh, contact tracing, de-escalation, things to uh, remove a lot of things that are currently with police and state troopers that should be in other areas uh, by folks who are trained to do this work that do not involve uh, lethal weaponry or things that can be used um, to torture and terrorize. And, you know, in, in Philadelphia, not too long ago, we had rubber bullets shot at peaceful protesters uh, who took over um, 
uh, the Vine Way, the Vine Expressway in downtown Philly, um, and also tear gas. We have not tear gassed or um, shot um, so-called rubber bullets because they're lead bullets with a coating on our own people in 35 years. Um, and there's active uh, legislation to demilitarize um, municipal police, and so I'm one of the authors of that bill as well. But as it relates to the feds coming in, like Trump has you know, sought to do in other states, um, as a legislator, I have not been kept apprised with whether or not he's trying to do that here. I just know that uh, we do have um, purview over state police and funds that could ultimately go to law enforcement on the local level. And these are conversations we need to talk about on every single level. Is, 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 does there seem to be some movement in the legislature right now in Pennsylvania, at least on the Democratic side, in terms of reallocating um, funding, defunding, however you want to frame it, uh, towards more protect, I mean, taking it away from police uh, entering communities and more towards community support, whether it's through health care or community service, whatever it is. I mean, we know we know the, the options. Uh, there hasn't been um, explicit agenda items by the House Democrats to do that, largely because there's not a lot of state money going to um, police. Hmm. Um, so if, if it is, it, it could be coming from federal programs. They apply for grants. So, you know, most municipal police are not funded by the states. Yeah. Um, they're, they're funded by, you know, local taxes. And so that hasn't been something that has been um, kind of a priority. But among uh, black and progressive legislators, these are things that we're talking about um, because uh, this is what's demanded in this moment. Good. How about how about in Virginia, Lee? I mean, you've got a little bit of an uphill battle there, but there is some some real open white supremacy happening, organized white supremacy, just to go back to our earlier segment, which was about a potential coup happening. <laughs> can't believe I'm even saying this, uh, if if Trump does not want to face the, you know, if he, if he doesn't want to count the paper ballots, essentially. Right. You know, I think, um, you know, what, what we're seeing in this country and Virginia is, is just one example of it is we're seeing um, that, you know, legislators who are supposed to be the closest representatives of the people have for generations sort of abdicated their responsibility to keep executive in mind. Um, and and Virginia is is emblematic of that. You know, we have actually three members of the General Assembly, including myself, who were assaulted by police um, and, and can't even get basic answers about that. So, you know, you talk hmm. about whether or not there's any information coming from uh, federal authorities to, to state legislators about what's going on. I can't even know the name of the state police officer that threw a flashbang grenade at me in May. Um, wow agency that the General Assembly is supposed to directly regulate. Um, you know, I, uh, I put in a bill uh, as a result of that, just just saying that they have to have their name tapes visible at all times. <laughs> and and that bill never received a hearing. What? So, uh, you know, this Oh, is, my God. There's this complete abdication of the oversight role of legislators for an incredibly long time. And anytime someone like me comes along and says, you know, we as legislators need to use our authority more to keep the executive branch in line, um, you know, you're either in a divided government situation where the executive branch can veto it, or you're in a unified government situation where uh, the, the legislative leadership doesn't want to take power away from a governor of their own party. So uh, we're really in this, this sort of, um, this perpetual ratcheting motion where yeah. the legislature just 
loses more power and then never takes it back and loses more power and never takes it back. You know, this is this is sometimes a tough question to discuss. Um, we as progressives obviously believe in in unions and the right to organize and stronger unions. Um, but being at the state level, I'm sure you're very well aware of of the the struggles that, uh, especially if you're in a democratic state. I mean, we're in New York, so oftentimes unions will not support the progressive candidate. Some unions will not support progressive candidate because they're tied. They have to work with the legislature and. And the establishment Democrat, in at least our case, who's setting the budget. Uh, how much do you find that a struggle sometimes in building coalitions to organize organize around issues? Because so much of of the future is dependent on on budget negotiations. And if you really go full force as progressives um, and organize around one or two issues, it could potentially lose you funding on other issues. Go with Rep. Rep. Um, another great point. Um, so what complicates it in Pennsylvania, and I'm curious what the standard uh, operating procedure is in Virginia, but there are no campaign finance uh, apps. So you could give a million dollars to the campaign of your choice, a billion dollars. And on the lobbying side, you, you can give someone a summer house, a Tesla. As long as we report it, we disclose it, it it's fine. And so that corrupts everything. And so all the moneyed interests well, it, and it and I'm you know I'm, I'm a pro labor guy, but it could be organized labor that cuts huge checks. But if we don't have conversations that are truly intersectional, particularly as we talk about Black Lives Matter systems of oppression, and we don't talk about the intersectionality between environmental justice, That's racial right. justice, um, worker rights, then we're going to lose because okay. then we have a litmus test that's so narrow. We say, yeah. well, if you're for, for labor, then you can't be against the Fraternal Order of Police. Or if you're for them, you can't be for environmental fighting environmental racism. And, and we have to really talk about how these um, issues are interrelated. And what I'm seeing and I'm inspired by are all the people on the uh, uh, in the grassroots who are connecting the dots between these intersecting uh, systems of oppression and they're requiring solutions that address those systemic issues in ways that have been put in silos in state legislatures around the country. So the, what I'm hoping is that the, the force of, of voters and constituents and the general public moving forward is requiring those of us to have those hard conversations to say, you can be both for the environment and labor at the same time mm -hmm. and racial justice. And in fact, if you're not all three, you're not working hard enough. And that's those are the conversations I'm looking forward to in the coming weeks and months. How about Virginia? Yeah. And here in Virginia, uh, you know, we're also a, a disclosure only state. We have no campaign <laughs> contribution limits. Whatsoever. This is so crazy to uh, me. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the number one political contributor in Virginia is the big electric monopoly, Dominion Energy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been that way since before they even had that name. You know, you can go back to the 1950s, 1960s and look at, uh, at former Lieutenant Governor Henry Howell's campaign. You know, he had a bumper sticker uh, for his campaign that said, Welcome to Virginia, owned and operated by VEPCO. Uh, VEPCO, Virginia Electric Power. Right. So this is, this is something that's been going on far longer than they've even been alive. Um, and, and it does come down to sort of where the distribution sources are, where the distribution power um, is, is ultimately that. Um, and, you know, in electoral politics, that comes down to campaign finance laws. 
Um, and you know, you can, you can put guide rails on it, you can put uh, limits on it, you can put disposal rules on it, um, but ultimately uh, what we have are uh, essentially two classes of people and the ownership class rules our politics and the working right. class, which is the 99% of us, just has to live with the consequences. And so you've really got to dig into these systems. You've got to go down to the root of it and you've got to figure out how to empower working people to have control over our own lives. Um, and you know, for me, ultimately, yeah, campaign finance limits are, are certainly a part of getting there. Uh, but the ultimate goal is making sure that um, the enterprises, the actual workplaces are owned and operated by the people who have to live with them. If we can get that as the dominant form of our economy, then we'll have a, a more just society throughout you know, sort of everywhere that those ripples go out to. Um, before we wrap up, are you guys working on anything that we should be watching, organizing around, making calls for? I know, you know you're know not in session right now, but Rep. Rabble, let's start with you. Yes, well, I, I just ended my legislative uh, session week um, just a few hours ago. We only have a few more uh, legislative uh, uh, days before uh, the November 3rd election, and our uh, term ends November 30th. The challenge we're going to have is there's going to be a lot of close races, and because of uh, uh, mail-in voting, which is new to our state this year, hmm. um, we may not know the results of those elections in four days and potentially over a week, which means that we could potentially not know who is in the majority in the state legislature by the end of our legislative term. Um, so we, we uh, and we're also concerned about, you know, voter suppression on election day itself, voter intimidation. Um, you know, that is that is the standard in this country, voter suppression. Um, yep. And uh, so the legislation that I'm working on is not going to pass this term. I'm trying to set it up to reintroduce next term when I hope Democrats are in the majority um, with uh, Democrats uh, in the White House so that we can actually do things in concert on the federal level and also working with the local level. That's great. Yeah. And and real, real quick, how close is the legislature there? What's the- We're down, by, we're down by nine in the House and only four in the state Senate. Oh so man. It's within striking distance and it will change the, the you know policy direction significantly. But to Representative Carter's point, you know, just because you have Democrats does not mean you're going to get the issues and the principles that we believe in, obviously. So we need to be able yeah. to hold our electeds uh, to account, irrespective of party affiliation. And we also need to know what the inside politics are. Who are the people who are going to lead when uh, we're in the majority and to hold them accountable? Because they're the ones who get the largest amounts of money from all the special interests. And we need to have transparency around that. Rep Carter. Yeah, so uh, here in Virginia, we're actually um, at roughly the midpoint in a, a special session. We actually called a special legislative session. Um, we would not ordinarily be conducting business uh, to deal with uh, COVID-19 relief and uh, police reform. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately, the list of things that we do is growing longer than the list of things that we are doing. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not up for re-election this November. Um, that'll be next year. Um, and ultimately, you know, what I'm working on is sort of finishing out this special legislative session to get as much change as possible. Um, and then uh, really doing a lot of, uh, a lot of questioning of, of whether, 
you know, the, the people are best served by having me in the legislature or you know, maybe a different position. Really? Oh, my God. I should see right now. <laughs> We'll talk about that offline. No decisions made yet. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't tease it if you weren't getting close. We know the political game. All right, everybody, go to his website and donate right now. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you for joining and updating us on what's happening at the state uh, state level. Super important uh, as we get closer to the election. Hope to have you on again soon. Uh, from another state in New Mexico, a Democratic state, what a breath of fresh air after five days of Oklahoma, Indiana, Ohio, Texas, special state itself, the panhandle. It's nice to be here. Originally, I feel that pain. It's a lot of Trump. A lot of passionate Trump. All right, guys. Stay well, be safe, and, and continue the good work. And special shout out to everyone in the chat right now getting us 200 likes to the show. This is awesome. We're, we're really building this thing. And Harvey K., of course course you're mixing it up in there i hope you're you're debating i hope you're debating the the guests i love when you do that and each other and thank you to our new moderator billy big bricks thanks for helping out and of course bob the og moderator uh special thanks to all of you and if you haven't already make sure to click like and subscribe smash that subscribe button too not just the like button and please share us on social media uh so people can learn about the show we are uh you know as we know we've we've just finished out our second week of a daily show it's and we went on the road on our second week because you know why not let's just get Let's just figure this out early on. Uh, but next week, we will be back in studio. Tomorrow, I will be back here, probably in this chair, uh, in Santa Fe, and and we'll have a great show. We're going to be talking a little bit more about organizing with Jane McAlevey. We love her. She's back to tell us what to do in preparation for November 3rd and preparation for what comes after November 3rd. That's on tomorrow's show, 3 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Thanks to all of you. Be well, be safe, and tell everyone you know to vote and wear a mask. <laughs>